Well, I don't think there is a subject that more preachers today dread to speak on than the topic which we encounter today, the issue that the Lord Jesus Christ confronts us with, and that is the subject of hell. For some, it's because they've been influenced by the marketing gurus of our age uh, who say that if you're making a sales pitch, you want people to become Christians, you've got to show the positive. You've got to use the carrot and not the stick. If you're talking about Jesus, talk about the joy that you can have, the life that you can have, how great it is to have your father with you. And they really are benefits of being Christian, but leave out the bad stuff, the stick. For some, it's it's the fear of being classed as one of those out-of-date, out-of-touched hellfire preachers of yesterday year, a fear-mongering manipulator. Who wants to be on the receiving end of that kind of criticism? And there's some pretty harsh criticisms out there in the world. But I suspect that the reason that many preachers shy away from it is because they really don't believe in it themselves, or at least they, they kind of live in this wishful thinking that it's not there and not real. Now, some of them even admit it. Anglican Bishop John Shelby Spong says, I don't think hell exists. Religion is always in control in the guilt-producing business. They create this fiery place which has literally scared the hell out of people throughout human history. Megachurch pastor Rob Bell says in his book, Love Wins, hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy but hell's not forever. God will have his way. Every sinner will turn to God and realize that he's already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. There'll be no eternal conscious torment. God does not pour out wrath. We bring the temporary suffering upon ourselves and he certainly does not punish for eternity. In the end, love wins. And you can always see him going at the end of that. But while the hell might be confronting while it may be unpopular to speak about, and while it might make us personally feel very, very uncomfortable, particularly as we consider those around us who might be in danger of the fires of hell, the fact of the matter is that hell is real and it was constantly on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, 13 times the New Testament mentions the word hell, let alone all the other ways it describes the place. But of those 13 times, 11 of them are on the lips of Jesus Christ. There was no hellfire preacher like Jesus. He he was in a class of himself. He was constantly talking about it. And it was never out of joy or out of delight that he did that. It wasn't because he was rubbing his hands together in gleeful anticipation that some of his enemies might go there. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't that uh, he was coming up with something to scare people and manipulate them into following him. No, Jesus wept over the reality of hell. He, Out of love, he went to the cross to save people from hell. Jesus taught, he warned, and he prayed to prevent you and me and others from going there. And as we enter into the final stretch of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll cover today and tomorrow, Jesus lays it out straight four times Three in our passage and once next week, he brings up the certain reality of what happens in the next life of the judgment of God, the reality of hell, which adds a whole new level of seriousness to what Jesus has been saying right throughout the sermon, doesn't it? People may praise the ideals of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, Gandhi uh, applauded the Sermon on the Mount as as the highest, one of the greatest pieces of spiritual instruction. Uh, Nikolai Tolstoy called it the Sermon on the Mount, the the road to peace and liberation, and and countless others. It's infected our culture and our language, and you know we'll say things like the salt of the earth and turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. They they sound great, don't they? And they're, they're just part of kind of our ethos of our community. But you get to the end of the sermon and you wonder if they, Gandhi, Tolstoy, our society, have really ever taken to heart what it says. Have they studied it? Because they don't seem to have grasped the weightiness of the issues that Jesus has been raising. Because heaven and hell are what's at stake. He's not been making suggestions so that you can get on with people a little bit better and you know make your marriage a little bit more exciting. He's, he's not been talking about a more positive way of life that will make you feel happy. He's not been given a, a version of spirituality that will make you feel more inspired and in touch with yourself and the spiritual realities. It may do some of those things, but that's not why he's speaking. Listen to what he says about the reality of hell. Firstly, he says it's a place of destruction. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. In verse 19, he uses the image of fire. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's the same idea back in chapter 5 and verse 22. Whoever says you fall will be subject to hell fire. And if you turn back to that uh, part there in 5.22, you'll see there's a footnote there that the word hellfire or the NIV will be subject to hell is literally the Gehenna of fire. Now, Gehenna was the rubbish tip outside of Jerusalem. It was their version of Lucas Heights. We saw a picture of Lucas Heights a couple of weeks ago. But unlike our one where all our rubbish is just done here, uh, Gehenna was a giant incinerator. It was a piece of perpetual burning waste. And that is the image that Jesus constantly uses of hell. And throughout the rest of the gospel, when Jesus mentions Gehenna, he always describes it as an eternal fire. You see that in Matthew 18 and Matthew 25. And every time the eternity of hell and the eternity of the fire is mentioned, he parallels it with the eternal life that he's got on hand. And so you can't have one without the other. You lose one and you lose the other. Both are real. The joy of life with God forever or the eternal fire of destruction in hell. But it's not just destruction that Jesus means when he talks about hell. Secondly, he says, hell's a place of isolation. You see that in verse 23 of our passage. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Hell's where you're isolated from God. That is, you're isolated from the source of all that's good isolated from him who alone brings joy and life. And because of that, it's not just isolation from God, but it's also isolation from each other. And therefore, it's a place of of loneliness and desolation. Jesus repeatedly speaks through the gospel of being thrown into outer darkness. People might flippantly say to you, ah, it's all right. I'll go to hell, that's where the party's going to be, that's where all my friends will be. No, they won't. They will not be there with their friends. 
There is no friendship in hell. Hell is where a person is isolated and abandoned. And finally, Jesus says that hell is a place of retribution. It's not a place a person just slips into accidentally out of the view of God. No, it's a place he sends someone as punishment. You see that in verse 23 as well. It's a place for the lawbreakers. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus describes the judgment that falls on God's enemies as being thrown into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal regret, everlasting tears, endless sadness. Some people might object, well, that seems so harsh. How does, how does the punishment fit the crime? At, at worst, we only sin for the years of our lives. How does... How can eternal punishment be just? I mean, that's the complaint of people like Rob Bell and John Shelby Spong. It's the complaint of the Jehovah's Witnesses. But could it possibly be that we haven't taken heart and understood the appalling wickedness of rejecting God's love day by day by day and the seriousness with which God takes it? Humanity is not a helpless and hapless victim of circumstances. We are enemies who spend our lives waging war against God. But someone else might say, it seems so unfair. Couldn't God give us a chance? Really? Really? Has he not placed us on this earth and provided us with everything that we need, given us people in our lives and home? Hasn't he prompted us with signpost after signpost? Has he not sent his only son to die on the cross for us? Has he not sent out his ministers and missionaries to the ends of the earth? The problem is not that God has been silent. The problem is that we have not been listening. Someone else might say, well, all this talk of hell seems so harsh and so unloving. You're just trying to scare me. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Back in 1994, I was uh, on a camp down in the Royal National Park uh, at one of the Anglican Youth Works campsites there. I think it was Telford. And uh, um, we were there having a good time, you know, studying the Bible or whatever activity we were doing at the time. And a man came running into the campsite and yelling at the top of his voice, run for your lives. The bushfire is coming over the hill. It's going to burn this place down run to the river, there is a boat there waiting to save you. Leave your stuff, leave your car, go now. And we ran. We didn't say, oh, you know, that terrible, unkind man, he's just trying to scare us. Maybe he's going to steal our belongings. No, we ran for our lives. Uh, that wasn't the way to think, that he was trying to scare us and manipulate us. I'm, I'm so very thankful for that man and that he warned us because the fire was real And it did come and affect the campsite and the boat was there and we were all saved. Why does Jesus speak of hell here in the Sermon on the Mount and everywhere else the way he does? He does it because it's real and because he so desperately wants you and I not to go there. He wants to warn us. He loves us enough to warn us. And he says there are choices to make that mean you will not, you're not going there. What are the choices? 
Well, he outlines them here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He lays them out for us. He says there are two kinds of roads in life, one to hell, the other to heaven. He says there are two gates you can enter, one that leads into hell and one that leads to heaven. And he says there are two kinds of teachers that you can listen to. One kind will lead you to hell, the other to heaven. And next week we'll see another choice that we've got to make as well, but I'll leave that for David as he wraps up the sermon. The roads and the gates, they come together in verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gates, Jesus says, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Notice that there's not multiple paths to either destination. There's only one to heaven and there's a big broad one to hell. Though it's safe to assume that many of the people on the road to hell are very confused about the destination. Uh, Lots may even think that they're not particularly on the road to anywhere. They're just living life for the moment and they're wandering aimlessly around They were not even thinking about the consequences, the destination. Though I'm sure that many others are convinced that they are on the road to heaven, but they've been deceived. Notice that the gate to hell is wide and the road is broad that leads there, whereas the path and the gate to heaven are narrow. They're narrow because it's only by following Jesus that anyone can make it. And no other way, as we'll see as Jesus wraps up the sermon next week, it's only his teaching that brings freedom and love that lasts. It's only his sacrifice that brings salvation. It's only his lordship that leads to life. Notice that the road to hell is easy, but the path to life is difficult. Why is it difficult? Well, it's difficult for lots of reasons. It's difficult because it's so countercultural. You always seem to be going the other way to everyone around you when you're a Christian. In every generation, in every stage of life, you, as you follow the teaching of the Lord Jesus and enjoy a precious relationship with your Father in heaven, you find yourself swimming against the current. It's also difficult because it's not a short dash. It's a marathon we're on. And you picture a marathon runner two-thirds of the way through the wall who hits the wall and has to push through the pain barrier in order to keep going. And I wonder if that's why so many young Christians or people who start out well in youth group, uh, they get uh, to their 30s and 40s and 50s and their, their faith takes a turn for the worse because there's just so many appeals and distractions that, that draw our minds and hearts and And you can see it's a long road and a hard road and there's an easier path that seems less demanding, a way where I can focus on my own pleasures. But it's also difficult because it's slow going, making progress in some areas of our life in regards to sin and godliness is is just hard work. Breaking old habits of sin can be challenging and painful. It's, I picture a, a rock climber, you know, kind of seeking out the next handhold and working out where to hammer that pitten in. And so it can be slow going at times. But it's not just the difficulty that Jesus points out about the road to life or the ease of the road to hell. Notice who's on the two roads. The broad road to hell has many on it, whereas the travellers on the path to life are few. It's not universalism. 
Universalists might believe in hell. They just don't think anyone's ever going there. Jesus is not a universalist. In fact, he's far from it. He says it's the majority of humanity who are on the road to hell. The many as opposed to the few. The way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Which in part explains why the the Christian life at times can feel so lonely. Think of Frodo and Sam as they they fought through uh, the final way across Mordor and climbed Mount Doom with Gollum on their heels, clutching at them, trying to drag them down. You think of Pilgrim from Pilgrim's Progress. He was a lone figure for much of the journey. If you've not read the the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, it's the second biggest selling book in history for a reason. Uh, and, And you'd be very, very glad if you do go and read it. And I think your soul will be the better for it because it's a story describing what it's like trudging the narrow and difficult road to life as a Christian. That's what the book is about. But the final and most important thing to notice about what Jesus says about the two paths and the two gates is that there is a decision to make. Jesus isn't a fatalist. He's not just shrugging his shoulders and sort of boredly telling, you know, these kind of realities while he's thinking, well, whichever path someone happens to be on, well, so be it. There's no changing that. No, he's pointing out the truth so that we can make sure we're on the right path. And if we discover that we happen to be on the wrong one, that we can make the change, we can change course. It's a command that he's issuing. Enter by the narrow gate, says Jesus. There is life on offer. You can have it. Make sure you're on the path leading to it. Enter the gate. Don't put it off. As the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with a thousand good intentions. Intending to enter is not entering. Thinking it might be nice to be on God's side does not make you right with God. There's a decision that has to be made, a choice that you have to make. You've got to accept Jesus' invitation to life. You've got to place your life in his hands and turn to him in repentance and faith. It may be that you're listening to this and you've never actually entered. You've heard about it. You know there's heaven and hell. You agree they're real and... You know, oh, you meant to last week when David spoke about asking and seeking and knocking and you thought about it through the week, but you never got round to it. Or maybe you felt the challenge, you know, a couple of years ago, it's something you heard and it struck you and you thought, I must do something about it. Maybe it was years ago at youth group or on beach mission or some camp and you never really did anything about it. Today's the day. Enter into life. Or maybe for some of you listening in, you, you, you set out with Jesus. You're, you're on the path to life. You've entered, but the path feeling particularly difficult at the moment. Don't turn back. Don't give up. Perhaps you're in the midst of the most intense spiritual battle that you have ever faced and you're feeling overwhelmed. Maybe it's due to some temptation that you're facing. That you, you wonder how you could ever not do that thing or be with that person. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's due to the isolation of COVID and the changes that have been thrust upon us and, and you're like, where is God in all this? Uh, maybe it's due to despair about things that you're going through at the moment that just seem so tough. Where can God be? Here is a command to keep battling, to keep going on. 
even if you cannot see it at the moment, God is good. Here is the way to life. There is a father who cares for you. He provides for you. The the one who knows every number of the hairs on your head, the one who cares even for the sparrow and knows all the birds and cares for them even though you are so much more precious to him than they are. The one who has paid the great price of the blood of his son shed on the cross, sacrificed that you might find forgiveness and life and be with him and be reconciled. It's a wonderful thing to walk through life in relationship with the loving Father. And there is joy and there is glory in obedience, even if you can't see it at the moment. And even if there's no quick or temporary relief in sight at the moment, keep in mind the destination. That's what Jesus is talking about. Keep in mind the destination. The destination is worth everything. The other way might seem relaxing. It might seem easier. It might it might be popular and Everyone you know is traveling that way, but look where it is going to. It is heading to hell. There are two roads and two gates. One to hell, the other to heaven. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says there's more to the choice that we've got to make. What's the next part? You've got to be careful who you listen to. Because there's also two kinds of teachers. If the road to hell is paved with a thousand good intentions, that same road to hell is also lined with a thousand false guides. You see that in verse 15. He says, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Oh, they might say that they're pointing you up the path to heaven, but if you let one of these guys program your GPS, you're going to find yourself in a very different place than what you expected. Do you believe Jesus when he says this? I know many who read this and go, yeah, but they just really don't exist. I see that Paul warns about the fierce wolves that are going to come and Peter warns of the same things, but, you know, they're, they're just not really out there, are they? Well, listen to Jesus. He says, notice what they look like. They come in sheep's clothing. That is, they look harmless. They, they look like they're part of the flock. You, they're hard to distinguish. They're camouflaged. They're not going to turn up with neon lights on their forehead saying, I am a false teacher. They're not going to come wearing a T-shirt with a picture of a wolf on the front of it. They look genuine. They might even come in the guise of an Anglican minister or an Anglican bishop. Or you, you might have a YouTube channel with millions of hits and views and downloads. That does not mean anything about what they are like. False teachers look like sheep. Notice their attitude. Outwardly they look like sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They're grasping, greedy, savage, full of pride, stubbornly arrogant, self-seeking. They lead the flock away to destruction. Notice their credentials in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And drive out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? I mean, hear what they're saying. They, they call Jesus Lord. That makes them really hard to distinguish. We're going to do 2 Corinthians, the second half, next term. And Paul has one of the scariest passages for me as a preacher. 
False teachers come and the things they bang on about are Jesus, the Spirit and the Gospel. Well, isn't that what all teachers of the Gospel speak about? Jesus, the Spirit and the Gospel? Yes, but, but they're a false Jesus, a false Spirit and a false Gospel. They call Jesus Lord. They say they love him. They use his name in all their works. They, they'll quite happily stand up and mouth the words of any of the creeds that you might happen to put in front of them. And talk about impressive. Look what they can do. They prophesy and predict the future and see the great things that God's going to do and how we're going to rise up like a mighty army. And they, they, they cast out demons. Jesus isn't saying they're faking it. They really do. They, they have powers. They do miracles. And you think, well, surely God's got to be able to be on their side if they can do all those things. But no. No, Jesus is warning us supernatural powers, real or faked, are no guarantee that anyone is on God's side. The power to cast out demons or do miraculous healing is no guarantee that anyone is genuine. And again, look at how many there are. It's not a small percentage. It's not a tiny fraction. No, on that day, many will say to me, there's lots of them, perhaps even the majority in of the voices in some circles. And I don't know about you, but I hear that and it's scary stuff. It's scary. They, they look the part, they play the part, they speak the part, and, and there's so many of them that they're backing each other up as they continue to urge and jolly people along the way to hell. So how can you spot them if they're so dangerous and so camouflaged? Is there a way to see through the camouflage? If it's not the Christian jargon that they're using or, or the power of their rhetoric or even the supernatural stuff they appear to be able to do, how can you tell? What's the clue that's going to tip us off? Well, there is a way and Jesus says it twice so that we get it. He says it in verse 16 and he says it again in verse 20. You will know them by, you will know them by their fruit. It's the only way to tell. Over at the rectory, we've tried for many years to grow passion fruit on lots of different occasions. Uh, you'd think that growing a vine would be one of the easiest things to do. But when you buy a passion fruit plant from Bunnings or Tim's Gardens or wherever you go, it's always grafted, right? They, they get a, a, a type of good passion fruit producing vine and they graft the branch of that into a more hardy rootstock of a different sort, a kind that really produces the most hideous, disgusting, tasteless, dry uh, fruit that's just bleh. The problem is, whenever we've planted the passion fruit, uh, the branches just shoot out in all sorts of directions. It just takes over the fence. You might have seen it down the fence uh, over the rectory. I try and get rid of it all, but you, you get to spring and... Uh, you see flowers budding everywhere, there's hundreds of them, and you get excited and you think, wow, hundreds of delicious, beautiful, intense passion fruit. But, but what kind are you going to get? Well, it depends. Is it from the graft or is it from the rootstock? And you, you can't tell from the fruit until you cut it open and take a bite. Guess which one we've ended up with the vast majority of the time, it's the rootstock. It just takes over. Sometimes you can't tell by looking at the plant at all. You've got to cut open the fruit and you'll know for sure. But sometimes you can see in Jesus' terms, you can't get figs from thistles. If you see thistles growing on that tree, it is not a fig tree. Do not go near it. 
Hear what Jesus is saying. He says, what a person believes and teaches will always work out in their life and and in the lives of those whom they teach and who follow them. And if you know them and watch them and watch the lives of those they influence, you'll see it, for whether it's good or ill. Paul will say to Timothy, you, however, have followed my life, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my love, my steadfastness. He says to Timothy elsewhere, you have to set an example in both your life and your doctrine so that you will save both yourself and your hearers. You've got to be able to see the fruit in their life and the lives of those around us, which is why it's so dangerous to have as your main Christian influence someone about whose life you know very, very little. It's, it's the problem of the megachurch. You just can't see. You, you can't see. You might see the effect over the long term in the lives of others and you might see it if there's some great, you know, tragic downfall and something's exposed, but you don't see it week to week because you just don't know their life. It's the problem of getting your main spiritual diet from podcasts or YouTube or, or from following the celebrity preacher. It's why a book like Rob Bell's saying, New York Times bestseller is no guide. And it's why internet church that we're doing during COVID can only ever be a temporary solution for Christian teaching and fellowship, even if doing church in your PJs is fun. You've got to be able to see the fruit in the lives of the teacher and in the lives of those who listen. It means you've got to be around each other. You've got to see how their family operates and see how the church families are going and, and what kind of things are, are happening. Beware, says Jesus. The road to hell is aligned by a thousand false teachers. They'll be offering a refreshing drink on the marathon run. They'll be cheering you on. They'll be inputting their data. And every one of us has a responsibility to be so instructed in the teaching of Jesus that we're conscious when we're being taught by a false teacher. Always check out what the preacher says. See if it stacks up against the scriptures and see what the fruit is. You've got to be able to test it. It's not just the responsibility of Joe Wiltshire or David Blouse or Adam Richards to guard against false structures. It's the responsibility that Jesus is laying on each of us. He says, beware. You've got to be able to discern yourself. This week, I have been sorely reminded of my job as a preacher and teacher of the Christian faith. My job is not to come to you Sunday by Sunday with words that are perfectly photo fit with the, the notions of our culture or that are theologically trendy. My job is not to entertain or jolly people along to boost up the offertories and keep the church lights going. My job is to come to you with the words of Jesus. So hear his words today. Enter by the narrow gate, for broad is the road and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so I have to ask, which path are you on? What destination are you heading towards? Which way are you going? Do make sure that you're on the right one.
that you enter by the narrow gate. Father, these are stark, serious, challenging words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Words that we don't like to think about, both for fear ourselves, because we don't want these spiritual realities to be the case, but also for fear of those who we suspect and see uh, heading down the broad road that leads to destruction. And we, we'd rather put our heads in the sand, but Jesus loves us too much. And so, Father, we pray that each one who is listening to this might put their life and their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has done everything necessary by which to enter into life, that he has paid for our sins. And so we pray that you would help each of us to make that hard decision each day, every day, to follow him, to give up our lives for him and the gospel, to take up our cross daily and to follow. We pray for those who are struggling Almighty at the moment with temptation and spiritual battle for those who are struggling to know your goodness or who just the isolation during COVID is getting to them and and they long for Christian encouragement because they feel like they can't run the race anymore. Father, please protect them. We pray for comfort from your word, from Christian friends. We pray for those who are lonely at the moment and struggling and feeling like they're in the midst of people who are all going the other way. Help them to be countercultural, to stand up and to be salt, to be light, to be like a city on a hill as Jesus calls us to be. Father, we pray for those who once we thought were running the race so confidently and doing the hard yards but appear to have turned away. Father, bring them back, rescue them from judgment. And Father, we pray for those who are on the road to destruction, those who've never understood, accepted, put their lives in your hand. Father, please help us to be in prayer for them, to show them the way, to answer the questions that they have, to provoke if necessary because they might not want to think about you, but these are eternal things. They are real. And so we thank you for our precious Lord Jesus that he cares enough to warn us for our sakes and for others. And we pray, please, that we might hear his warning and we might hear his promise of life as well and come to you for everything. Help us to put our lives in your hand and enter the narrow gate that leads to life. Amen.